The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit for participation in this activity or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. This activity was supported by an independent educational grant from Sparrow Therapeutics. Hi, my name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you to another one of our educational podcast series and this show title is specifically Optimizing the Treatment of Complicated Urinary Tract Infections. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Lenore Ackerman. Uh, Dr. Ackerman is a urologist at the University of California, Los Angeles, so UCLA. She specializes in voiding dysfunction, particularly in older patients, and is the director of research for the Division of uh, Pelvic Medicine and Reconstruction and is an active researcher in the role of the microbiome in lower, lower urinary tract disease. Uh, so first of all, Lenore, thank you so much for joining. It's really our pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much, Dr. And thank you very much to the AUA for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Great. So we have a, a few brief learning objectives, and I'll just touch on um, uh, touch on these in in, in brevity. Uh, the first is we'll talk a little bit about differentiating uh, simple or uncomplicated versus complicated urinary tract infections, and some of the differences is management strategy. A second learning objective is uh, reviewing some of the current treatment options for complicated UTIs. The third is uh, looking at some of the similarities and differences for complicated. UTIs and the various different treatment options and shared decision-making. And finally, we'll touch on a little bit the concept of antibiotic stewardship, uh, and, and particularly in trying to treat patients in, in the safest way without uh, associated morbidity. So Lenore, maybe we'll just add a sort of a 20,000 foot view. Um, <laughs> and certainly for, for some of our listeners that, that maybe are earlier in the phase or earlier learners, you know, what is a UTI and, and you know, what is the, what is sort of the, the definition of a urinary tract infection? That's actually a, a harder question, I think, than it seems at face value, which is, you know, we have a simple definition of what we think of as a urinary tract infection. And that would be um, acute onset urinary symptoms, which most commonly are things like urgency, frequency and dysuria in association with bacteriuria, uh, which typically we define as a positive culture that is greater than 100,000 CFUs or colony forming units per milliliter uh, on a standard clinical urine culture. Um, that is actually not at all a as simple as it seems, though, because um, the definition of greater than 100,000 CFUs really comes to us from literature that has nothing to do with UTIs. It actually comes from originally back in the 1950s from a study of asymptomatic women looking at if they took a catheterized sample and found bacteria, what was the corresponding finding on a voided sample that matched that that 
bacteria found on a catheterized sample. So it was really a measure of what is true bacteriuria derived from the bladder rather than what is a symptomatic urinary tract infection. So while that definition may actually be useful for what it was originally intended for, there's plenty of evidence that's come since that suggests that colony counts that are far less than that may still signify a clinically significant infection in patients with appropriate symptomatology. And so this concept of just using a culture alone or, or symptoms alone as being diagnostic for UTI is, is probably not sufficient and requires both a significant clinical suspicion that there's an infectious process going on and some evidence in one way or another that there's bacteria at the heart of that. Um, and I would say that there's some room for flexibility in how we define bacteriuria. Um, as well as some room to be a little bit more stringent probably in how we define uh, the symptoms associated with urinary tract infections. So, so it, 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 it still is quite open to interpretation, but I think those are our, our sort of published guidelines of, of what we define as a, as a urinary tract infection, but it has to be taken with a certain amount of sort of, you know, circumspect <laughs> or perspective on, on that point. Yeah, so that that's a really great point. So so it really seems like the actuarial colony count per se does not at all truly define whether this is a urinary tract infection. And and if you have the appropriate symptom complex, even if you have ten times fewer, like ten thousand or five thousand, you're saying that would still be falling in the realm of what we would define as a urinary tract infection. Is that right? I, I think you can, it can, it's, it can be consistent with urinary tract infection. And I think that's where the hard part comes is that it has to be really heavily informed by your judgment as a clinician as to whether that makes sense. And so, you know, if you get 10,000 colony forming units of mixed, you know, mixed bacteria, some of which are lactobacilli, I'm probably looking at that thinking to myself, that's a contaminated urine culture and a woman probably from vaginal origin. And maybe their symptoms aren't due to a, a real true infection. But if you get that, you know, 50,000 units, 50,000 colony forming units of E. coli in a patient with heavily suspicious symptoms, you know, they were fine three days ago and can tell you sort of within the hour of when they started to get dysuria and increasing urinary frequency, that's much more consistent to me, even though it doesn't meet that 100,000, uh, you know, criteria uh, threshold for positivity. So I think it really does depend on, you know, I sort of feel like it, it, it's it, to be a little silly it, it's almost a little like uh like the uh, supreme court's decision on pornography that sort of we all kind of know uti when we see it but it's hard to put a strict definition on it um and so i think it, that you kind of have to to use the the information of the symptoms and the culture and put that together with that sort of je ne sais quoi part of the definition that is our own clinical suspicion and make your best guess a little bit um based on that on all that stuff together and maybe just the last sort of question in this topic realm that I would ask you is, um, what about the patient who has symptoms, okay, yes. a very compelling story, but has no bacteria? Um, yeah, there. <laughs> so, so and, and maybe we, I don't want to go off too far on a tangent, but but sort of we've, we've talked so far about bacteria and the appropriate sort of bacteria with clinical suspicion, but what about the symptom but no bacteria? 
Totally. That's, I think, probably the most challenging, you know, clinical situation that we often face in, in just general practice is what about that patient who comes in and they have really convincing symptoms, um, but nothing to, to treat. And I think there again, it comes back to the specifics of that patient's history. And this gets to our complicated UTIs a little bit too, which is, you know, it, what's there, what's happened before that moment. And if their symptoms are really suspicious, like, like they had, again, can tell you the hour and the minute that they developed, you know, dysuria, hematuria, urgency, and frequency. I really feel like it's, it's pretty convincing in that situation for an infection, even if your urine culture may not be telling you what you need to know. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with presumptive treatment in that situation, since it seems like that's, that's the most likely cause. That changes though, at least for me clinically, when that patient comes back with their third or fourth episode of exactly that same thing, and their microscopic urinalysis has absolutely not a smidge of inflammation on it, their cultures have been negative, and they're now in their fourth or fifth episode, you know, maybe not fourth or fifth, but they're now in multiple episodes that appear similarly, and antibiotics haven't been doing it for them. And I think that changes things for me, both because it changes my suspicion that antibiotics are going to alter the course of their outcome. And it makes me think, you know, what I've been doing so far hasn't been working. So maybe I really need to be thinking about alternate etiologies for whatever's going on with their clinical presentation. And that is, you can kind of carry that forward to the conversation of patients who qualify as complicated UTIs because bacteriuria, you know, is in that situation, you kind of have the opposite where their cultures are constantly positive. Their symptoms may change over time and you're not sure when to treat that. And so again, it has to be kind of heavily informed by that patient's history of, are their symptoms acute in onset? Are they at risk of progression of that bacteria into a more complicated or more serious infection? Or do we have some time to kind of try some other things? Because um, they've had this exact same thing happen six times before, and they never seem to get fevers or anything more complicated as a as a consequence of it. And so I think when you when you're faced with that mismatch between symptoms and 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 culture, it can go either way, right? Bacteriuria, but not really very convincing symptoms, versus you know really convincing symptoms and no bacteriuria. Either way, you sort of you know the first time around that you see that you know, I think it's reasonable to think about it as an infection. The second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the 18th time, you got to sort of think to yourself, what's really this individual patient's history of response to antibiotics and risk of progression to more serious infections. And the last sort of comment in that is that, is that, you know, that we, we underestimate the potential side effects that, that, that antibiotics bring. And maybe we'll touch on this a, a little bit more later, but, but, one of the risk factors for more serious and progressive infections is a history of antibiotic use. And so that's always something we kind of have to keep at the back of our minds is that it is, it's not super harmful to treat people with, with antibiotics, but accumulating over time, there can be some significant consequences. Okay. So, so we've talked a little bit about um, this, this concept of uncomplicated UTIs. And, and you mentioned a few, as we've, as we've sort of delved into this more, nuanced area that we just were touching on, you, you did sort of allude to this sort of concept of the complicated UTI. So maybe just for our audience, what is a complicated and what is an uncomplicated? We've talked about uncomplicated, so what's complicated? Yeah, so uncomplicated UTI is basically defined by the absence of complicating factors. <laughs> so, and those complicating factors tend to be sort of anything anatomic, functional, 
uh, or sort of you know patient related that leave the patient at higher risk of UTIs or higher risk of complications of UTIs, meaning progression to pyelonephritis, urosepsis, or bacteremia, those kinds of things. And so that can be sort of anatomic issues, meaning bladder outlet things like bladder outlet obstruction um, from BPH or urethral stricture or something like that, ureteral strictures, you know, something anatomic in the urinary tract that impairs, say, drainage or clearance of, of these bacteria the way that they normally are cleared, which is just by flushing out the system through constant, you know, passage of urine. Um, that's actually a pretty common clinical situation. And and men kind of fall under that category of having a, a not necessarily anatomic obstruction, but there's just more, more, uh, more continence mechanisms in the male lower urinary tract that make them a lot less likely to get UTIs than women. And so in the context of those increased continence mechanisms, you basically, anybody who gets a UTI, any man who gets a UTI has, has kind of, all of those have already failed at being their protection would sort of suggest there's something going on there that could be anatomic in nature. And so any man or anybody with a functional or anatomic obstruction or emptying deficit, and that would also include things like neurogenic bladder, bladder atony, um, you know, uh, any anything like that spinal cord injury where things aren't emptying right or flushing out appropriately. And so, so complicated um, anatomic or functional causes can, can make somebody at higher, at higher risk uh, of a UTI or a progression to more severe disease. There are also sort of patient specific factors and those can be things like medications that might impair the patient to clearing a urinary tract infection normally. And most of those kind of come down to, you know, immunologic or rheumatologic conditions or medications that have, you know, uh, immunosuppressive um, effects. So things like immunosuppression for a any kind of transplant, renal transplant, or any other solid organ transplant, um, those patients are going to have impaired clearance of urinary infections and so can be at higher risk for progression, um, as well as some of our rheumatologic diseases sort of by their very nature, things like multiple myeloma, people are going to have an impaired immune system, or many of the medications that are used to treat rheumatologic conditions um, like uh, lupus or multiple sclerosis or, um, uh, or, or rheumatoid arthritis. And then sort of last in that that part of the list is actually sort of bacterial factors, which is if somebody's got a strong history of drug-resistant infections, um, multi-drug resistant, you know, E. coli or, or extended spectrum beta-lactamase uh, producing bacteria, um, those can kind of fall under that same heading of complicated, most not because they're you know, fundamentally different infections, but because it kind of changes our approach or our ability to treat them, uh, you know, more, uh, less aggressively, I should say, sort of without patient oral medications and makes makes us have a little bit more concern that we won't be able to manage them or watch them closely. Um, and so I think any of those things kind of fall into that category of complicated UTIs um, and and can can change not they don't change so much your options for how you treat things but they just kind of change your suspicion for more aggressive for needing more aggressive treatments or being worried about those complications and and just uh, i and i may have missed it but 
does the, does the group of patients that have some sort of indwelling drainage tube, whether it be suprapubic or urethral cut, they, they fall yeah. into the group as well? Yeah, right? so they fall into that. They fall into that category of anatomic sort of dif- differences or or difficulties. And absolutely, any of those patients with 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 indwelling devices can be at higher risk. And I think you know, for for patients with things like uh, you know Foley catheters, it's well documented that they're going to commonly have colonization of both the catheter and likely of the urinary tract um, with with bacteria. And that, again, sort of is part of the picture that makes them more um, more predisposed to urinary tract infections. But there's also the sense that there's also the, the second factor there, which is why did they need that in the first place? Right. So there's something else going on within the urinary tract that's caused them to need that device and therefore also makes them sort of independently at higher risk of urinary tract infections as well. So, so we've talked about uncomplicated. We talked now about complicated. Maybe we'll now, maybe almost go back to the beginning, which is if you just have a, a patient with a urinary tract infection, let's say uncomplicated to start, what are sort of the, the goals of treatment of this patient? And then maybe we'll pivot and talk about the ones that are, are the complicated cases. So, I mean, what are the basic goals of treating a patient with, with UTIs? And, and does it change at all if they're, they're uh, a single episode versus recurrent episodes? And how do you think about that? Yeah, that, there's a lot there. So let's start with um, goals of treatment for the just simple first episode, uncomplicated UTI. And so, you know, I think that previously, or for a lot of, even maybe still for a lot of providers, there's a focus on clearance of the infection as being, you know, sort of our goals of treatment. And I think we should really be taking a step back and thinking about readjusting that to to a couple of a couple of things, and the the, the order is 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 still I think up for debate. But you know, amelioration of the patient's symptoms—that's really I think you know for the patient their biggest concern is just feeling better. You can feel pretty miserable with a UTI, and they want to feel better. Um, the second thing should be you know prevention of badness, if you will, um, and that can include things you know including the progression of the infection to a more serious infection um, and but also should probably include the prevention of side effects from whatever treatment we give them and so that can include the side effects of antibiotics which can be as mild as you know a yeast infection uh, but can progress to be as severe as things like c difficile colitis or even some of the severe side effects of allergic reactions to antibiotics um, or uh, the side effects to specific antibiotics like the like the the two black box warnings that currently exist for the fluoroquinolones, um, things the um, which include tendon rupture and aortic uh, aortic complications as well. So you have both prevention of the side effects of treatment, prevention of progression of that infection, or the side effects of of, of an untreated infection, but also the the patients I think really want relief of their symptoms. And nowhere in there is there, you know, sterilization of the urine, I think, as as the primary goal. And I think that is really something we should focus on. There is a growing sort of recognition that bacteriuria can be normal in circumstances, in some circumstances, and secondarily, in may actually be protective. And so there are a couple of studies that seem to demonstrate that asymptomatic bacteriuria actually may be part of what prevents us from progressing to more serious infections, that those bacteria that sort of exist with us under normal circumstances may fill the space and that otherwise would be filled by pathogenic bacteria and not, and, and may even 
actually contribute to some of our defenses against more progressive infections. They, they, there are many bacteria that actually themselves produce substances that 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 downregulate or inhibit other types of bacteria, and so they may form part of that defense. And so the concept of sterilizing the urinary tract may be something we not only want to just deprioritize, but actually actively discourage. So I think you know, no matter what the infection, whether it's un whether it's a first infection, recurrent infection, complicated infection, those should really be our goals. Make the patient feel better, prevent bad complications of those infections, and, and sort of minimize the adverse events or adverse reactions to whatever our treatments are. And, and, and maybe I'll, I'll sort of, you know, put you on the spot. Just for our average listener, somebody comes into your office, uncomplicated UTI, maybe take us a little bit through um, what are the most common agents that you use and what is the yeah. duration that, that we should be treating these patients uncomplicated? So, and then we'll right. go on to the more, you know, the more nuanced setting. Sure. So, so the, the Infectious Disease Society of America, or the IDSA, has some good recommendations for the management of cystitis. Their last set came out in 2011, I think, and they're actually currently in the process of updating those. So keep an eye out for, for those updated recommendations. But the old ones are still good um, and still very helpful. They're, they're sort of mirrored in the AUA guidelines as well. You can find that information there. Um, so basically, the concept of initial treatment for cystitis and that means just cystitis, lower urinary tract infection only, not pyelonephritis, should be restricted to agents that have the least sort of systemic effects. So they, they concentrate as much as they can in the urinary tract, but have good penetrance there. And you want to try to give the shortest dose that you can give that's still going to be effective. Um, and, and so the first line agents for those two, uh, for those two societies uh, are nitrofurantoin, and typically the guideline recommended dose is five days for uncomplicated or you know, isolated lower urinary tract infections. Um, uh, Bactrim, so that's trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, uh, 800 milligrams, 160 milligrams, um, so the double strength dose, and that's twice a day for three days, or a single oral dose of phosphomycin. Phosphomycin is a funny one because, and it bears a little bit more uh, explanation. It's a great drug. <laughs> it's it uh, can be used orally. It is the only oral agent that we really have that's effective against extended spectrum beta lactamase producing bacteria. Um, single dose is fantastic. It's pretty well tolerated by most people and it works really well. So, uh, so why, why isn't it more commonly used? And the problem there is coverage and availability. So often requires prior, this is, which I think is silly, it requires a prior authorization, which is somebody's in an active cystitis episode, they're, they're not waiting to get a prior authorization. And secondly, a lot of pharmacies don't carry it. So, you know, I've, there have been times when I've had to call, you know, you want to get that patient outpatient treatment. You don't want to bring them into the hospital and phosphomycin will work for them. And my staff will end up calling five, six, seven different pharmacies to try to find somebody who's actually got phosphomycin in stock. So it can be difficult to get. Um, and so that there is this unfortunate disconnect between the real world availability of phosphomycin and its role in our guidelines. But if you can get it, it's great and it often can work for patients. Um, and so that's, you know, complicated or uncomplicated patient, 
you know, any of those agents can be reasonably used. You may, there is some, some sort of wiggle room for consideration of slightly longer courses, you know, taking nitrofurin showing to seven days in a complicated patient and Bactrim to five um, uh, or Fosfamacin to, to a couple different doses in patients in whom you're a little bit more concerned about. But those, those are still our first line doses for patients in whom an isolated lower urinary tract infection is, is all you're worried about and you're not really as suspicious that there could be progression or early signs of bacteremia in those patients. Got it. So you talked a few minutes ago about sort of the goals and the treatment strategies for, for UTIs in general. Maybe now take us to how do you apply those concepts you talked about before, but now how do you apply that to, to the complicated uh, UTIs, either the, the, the anatomic factors or the patients or whatever defines that? How do you apply it to this setting? Yeah, that's super hard, unfortunately, just because, you know, in most of these situations, bacteriuria becomes almost more the expectation than, than the, you know, than, than any kind of useful diagnostic tool. And so, you know, the patient with neurogenic bladder, the patient with the indwelling Foley catheter, the patient with, you know, long-standing bladder outlet obstruction from BPH, uh, all of these patients, you know, in renal transplant patient, bacteriuria can be extremely common and and being able to differentiate the situations in which that patient is at risk of progression due to a more serious infection versus when they can be managed you know successfully outpatient is really hard it's hard to know and it's and all of us in that situation kind of take the step back and like oh they've got symptoms they've got bacteria they're complicated i'm worried that you know if i don't do something about this right now they're going to end up in the hospital next and and that's that's no one wants that nobody wants that at all so i don't think anybody is going to fault you for changing your approach to to the kind of treatment that would be more focused on an upper urinary tract infection and for and sort of to take that next step again idsa has some great guidelines that are useful for helping um, guide treatment there um, and their first line agents for suspected upper tract infections are actually fluoroquinolones um, and or bactrim uh, if you think you can manage it as an outpatient, which again is is also, you know, concerning. And I think, again, has to be informed by that patient's, you know, unique individual situation. Is this somebody you've seen for years? They rarely ever get pyelonephritis. They live around the block from the hospital and you know they're going to come in if anything's wrong. They've got a ride. They've got family support. You know, you, you feel pretty comfortable they can do it versus the patient who lives in a rural community where you know that, that there's no monitoring possible and you have to sort of get them on the way to the hospital mm -hmm. so that you you, you can prevent any particular complications. So there's a lot about the unique patient situation and their history of infections that may inform how you manage that. Um, but again, you know, you really got to be guided by by a little bit by your gut suspicion of what's going to happen in them. And there isn't great data to tell us, you know, in those complicated patients, when what are warning signs uh, uh, you know, other than the early signs of bacteremia, like fevers, chills, nausea, vomiting, like you got those symptoms, you're telling that patient to do something very different. But in the absence of that, where they're just talking about, you know, changes in frequency, changes, a little bit of, of increase in their typical incontinence, it's much, much, much harder to get a sense of what to do then. And you have to be guided by, you know, your first do no harm kind of, kind of 
mm -hmm. you know, principles. If that patient has good access to care, you can make a reasonable attempt at outpatient treatment. But if they don't, you might want to bring them in anyway and at least give them a shot of, of something, you know, uh, intramuscular IV just to start off their treatment. And so again, those IDSA guidelines give some options for what you can do there. Like if you're seeing that patient in the office, you can give them a single dose of an IV or intramuscular uh, a medication, either a, a, a cephalosporin or a, a, a fluoroquinolone if you have access to those in your clinic, and then start them in on, on an oral course with very strict return precautions. Um, uh, you know, that's it's, it's a challenge, and that is something that needs needs a lot more research for us to give better guidelines about how to manage those. It might be an okay time to sort of mention um, the what I think is a, is a big research gap, which are which are biomarkers for really true infection. There have been some um, some studies looking at potential urinary biomarkers or blood biomarkers of of more progressive infections, and there are some candidates, things like IL six as a marker or uh, procalcitonin or things like that as markers of potential progression to more severe infections. The problem is that they're not easily available in a sort of point of care testing scenario. They're still experimental and we really need that data to mature a little bit better to help us out in these complicated situations. So maybe in the last five minutes or so, we'll, we'll turn to the last point, which is, um, you know, and, and I, the buzzword that we always use is, you know, antibiotic stewardship, right? And, and how, how do we as clinicians uh, practice responsibly? How do we balance yeah. the use of antimicrobial use, but at the same time, not potentially dig a hole that we're going to put the patients into, maybe not this episode, but maybe down the line with therapy. So, so maybe your thoughts on that. Sure. You know, I think that this is, this is a, a sort of concept that comes from an evolving understanding of the role that bacteria and other microbes play in in our whole body sort of ecosystem. And so there's this newer concept, it's not entirely new, but a better recognition of this concept that, that we as humans host communities of microbes. And these microbes, you know, bacteria are by far the best characterized, you know, exist in a lot of our visceral organs and on our body surfaces like the skin um, and actually perform functions for us as humans that that we can't do without them. And so, you know, that their, their functions in the gut are very well character or or at least better characterized than anywhere else um, and do play a really critical part in not just metabolism, but in, in a lot of our, our organ systems, including sort of this, this novel recognition of the brain gut sort of axis that seems to be involved in, in neuronal regulation, um, both at sort of a, a local level, um, but also sort of at the central nervous system level and, and disturbances in those microbes um, and those microbial communities can result in consequences down the line that, that we have not really fully understood yet. And that can include things such as, as, as mental health disturbances in, and, you know, diseases, you know, particularly in younger patients that can have lifelong consequences. And so that concept that, that, that altering these communities, these microbial communities, um, 
can have health consequences to us, not just in the immediate, you know, sense that we we have a better sense of things like, you know, women who get yeast infections after antibiotic treatments, or you know that that feared complication of C difficile colitis that's sort of a well recognized, um, or post antibiotic associated diarrhea, which can be worse than the UTI was to begin with. You know, these things are pretty well recognized, but that there may be also consequences down the line in terms of antibiotic use that we may not have fully understood yet. And so that idea, which we kind of encompass into this idea of collateral damage, this idea that 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 targeting microbial communities may deal with the infection now, but have other consequences that are wider spread uh, within the individual, um, as well as within the community and the in the um, in the manifestations of antibiotic drug resistance and 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 possibly so severe multi drug resistant bacteria that that we can't do anything about these these infections at all with antibiotics. So all of that is kind of encompassed into this bad bad idea of collateral damage that's that we need to prevent. And so how do we become better stewards or better, better, uh, better purveyors of antibiotics in a more responsible way to prevent that collateral damage? And I think, you know, you again, it really comes back to this idea of judgment um, being sort of central in our in our decision making process. And that should be focused again, shifting from clearance of all bacteria from the urinary tract to when will antibiotics really make a difference? And and for a lot of patients with uncomplicated urinary tract infections, they can clear them without antibiotics. Now, they may not be happy about that. So uh, this concept of symptom amelioration being a goal is, is also important, but there are some studies that suggest we can do a decent job of controlling symptoms with supportive care like NSAIDs such as ibuprofen in combination with bladder analgesics like uh, phenazepiridine or pyridium. And so that may be a possibility for uncomplicated patients. And in the complicated patients, we just have to decide, you know, based on that individual patient's risk profile, access to care, uh, and pattern of prior infections, do we really think antibiotics are going to make a difference in this patient? Or can we observe them? Or can we try sort of the less uh, aggressive antibiotics, of which uh, nitrofurantoin is by far the least sort of collateral damage inducing uh, antibiotic for the urinary tract? Um, and sort of sort of keeping that in the back of our minds. There's one last thing that needs to be to be thought about when you think about it, but prescribing antibiotics that we haven't discussed yet, and that's the local antibiotogram. And and that is often hard for physicians practicing in the community to have, be plugged in on. If you're in a hospital-based practice, your hospital uh, infectious disease department um, will often have available to you, you know, what are the community rates for your sort of hospital system of resistance to fluoroquinolones. And that's something you need to know or resistance to Bactrim. And so if you've got a patient with a up, suspected upper tract infection and you want to try to manage them outpatient, but you haven't gotten that culture back yet with the susceptibilities, it would be, it's important to try to find out what is community resistance to Bactrim or community-based resistance to Cipro. Because if it's over certain thresholds, for example, 20% for Bactrim, you probably don't want to make that your first, your first attempt at therapy. And you want to try something different. And the same thing goes for for fluoroquinolones. Um, and so being sort of cognizant of, of what's going on in the community is an important feature there. And if you're not a hospital-based, you know, physician, getting that from the hospital that's sort of closest to you uh, can help inform those decisions as well. No, that's really, uh, that's outstanding. And I, and I think you hit on this really important point that, that local antibiotic biograms may certainly vary from uh, region to region. And, and 
we certainly have looked at this a lot when you look at the whole prostate biopsy infection realm. Right. And, and it's mm -hmm. the same, you know, concept, which is sort of knowing knowing the resistance profile of your local community to help sort of tailor the antibiotics that you might use. Absolutely. Well, I, I really want to thank you, Lenore. This is a really outstanding. I think the way you sort of think about and explain sort of this disease process is great. I want to thank our audience uh, for their time. And certainly for more information, please visit uh, auanet.org university. And again, Lenore, thank you so much. Really appreciated the conversation. Thank you so much. It was great to be here.